Thanks very much, Brother John. And good morning, brethren and sisters. There were three Nazarites from birth recorded in the scripture. Just the three. They are Samson, who we considered yesterday in our study in chapter 13 of Judges. Samuel, as recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. And John the Baptist. I want you to join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 1, brethren and sisters, because here we see a remarkable account of the promise concerning the birth of John the Baptist as he became known in due time. And we are going to see this morning, we hope, some of the principles of Nazariteship emerge in the life of this man in quite a dramatic way. I won't try and over-dramatise it, brethren and sisters, because it speaks for itself. And it's a very powerful example of what Nazariteship unto God is really about. If you want to know what God expected of Nazarites, look to John the Baptist. And you'll see in him the very epitome of the principles of Nazariteship expressed in the life of a man who ranks, I believe, only second to the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the greatest among men. And so in the record of Luke chapter 1 we read of this most important day in the life of Zacharias the priest. We know the story well. Once in a lifetime a priest could expect to go in to the temple and to burn incense. And Zacharias had waited a long time. He was an old man. And that day came. This once in a lifetime experience. Imagine how awestruck he was when he went into the temple to burn incense. He saw an angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The timing is impeccable, isn't it? God was going to introduce the forerunner for his son. And he chose these circumstances, this time. And we read in the record of Luke chapter 1 and at verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth. And what kind of character would he be, this son to be born to the ageing Zacharias and Elizabeth? Born by the intervention of God. For it was impossible for them at their age to have children by natural means. And so God had to intervene. And Zacharias found that very difficult as we know. And was struck dumb for the period of the pregnancy of his wife. We read of John in verse 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And immediately, of course, we know we're in the context of Nazariteship. And he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. There is no definite article there. 
The diaglot translates it a spirit of holy or perhaps more effectively it might be translated a spirit of holiness. And if there was one thing that stamped the character of John the Baptist, it was separation from the world. Absolute separation from the world. There was in him a spirit of holiness or a disposition of separateness. And that would be from his mother's womb, which of course gave tremendous responsibilities to Zacharias and Elizabeth because they didn't have much time. And it's quite evident that they died while John was still quite young. Imagine the work they would have put into him. And many, it says in verse 16, of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Because he would have a single-minded determination to fulfil his divinely appointed role. When John went forth into the deserts, he eschewed all the things that you and I take for granted. I was dependent as a teenager upon my fellow young people. I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for the fact I had a large group of young people with whom to associate. I was dependent prior to that on my parents. John's parents died very early in his life. And if it wasn't for the fact, brethren and sisters, that I had other brethren to whom I could look up to and who could be a mentor to me, I don't know where I would be today. John didn't have much of that at all. But he knew what his mission was and he gave himself wholly to accomplish it. He never had many friends. No one wanted to live out in the wilderness where he lived. He never had many mentors. He never got married. He had none of those things. And he was totally dedicated to the mission that he had been given. And because of it, many of the children of Israel would turn to the Lord their God. And he would go forth before him, it says in verse 7, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Or as Brother Thomas translates that sentence, to restore to the posterity the father's dispositions and disobedient ones to just person's mode of thinking. That was his role and to some extent he accomplished that. Elijah, of course, will complete that work as we know very soon. And so, brethren and sisters, we look at John the Baptist. I just want to have a look at a couple of passages in Luke to cement the character of this man. We want to have a look at his way of life. Come to Luke chapter 7. And we'll cover two points in this passage from verses 24 to 28 of Luke 7. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people, that is, Jesus began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? 
That's from whence we have taken our title, as you can see. A reed shaken with the wind. But what went she out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment, silk garments, like Herod and his company. Is that what she went to see? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled lived and live delicately are in king's courts. You don't find that in John because he was out in the wilderness and we know what sort of clothing he wore. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, more, much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, Malachi 3, 2, and which shall prepare thy face before thee, thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, look at this commendation, brethren and sisters, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now we can argue about what he means at the end of that verse, but I believe he's referring to himself. For Jesus was the only one with what you might call a guarantee. He knew he would be in the kingdom of God, but none other could attain the kingdom until he had accomplished his work. So I believe he's saying that amongst all men born of women, including ourselves, there was none that came anywhere near John the Baptist except for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was faithful to his vow to the end of his days and absolutely free of hypocrisy. You look at Luke chapter 3. Wouldn't it be nice to be like this? To be totally free of hypocrisy. The people came to John and asked him, verse 10 of Luke 3, what shall we do then? And many of them were hypocritical. They didn't really intend to make any changes to their life. But this is the sort of thing that you have to sort of say, don't you? What shall we do? And he answered and said to them in verse 11, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. How many coats did John have? He had one coat of camel's hair, taken probably from a dead animal, wrapped around his body. He didn't have two coats, and even if he gave the one away that he had, nobody would wear it. And he that hath food, let him do likewise, he says at the end of verse 11. What food did John have? He ate locusts and wild honey. Now there's an argument about what kind of locusts are referred to. Some say it was the, the hopping insect. Others say it was some kind of fruit. doesn't matter really at the end of the day. Nobody, I mean nobody today would eat it. You see, he was absolutely free of pretension and hypocrisy. And that's really, brethren and sisters, what Nazariteship is about. God sought volunteers who would come to him with a willing heart to serve him, to devote themselves to him for a specific period of time of any length of their choosing and dedicate themselves absolutely to the fulfilment 
of their vow. That's what he sought. He didn't get it in all that many. But he got it in John the Baptist. And this man was uncompromising. He delivers an uncompromising message. We won't turn to Matthew 3, but you can pick it up from Luke chapter 3 anyway. You'll see there in verse 7, he says to the multitude that came to be baptised of him, how would you be? They're coming to be baptised, <coughs> excuse me, baptised of him. And he turns upon them and says, O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're kidding God. You come to be baptised of me, but you've got no intentions of changing your way of life. That's what he tells them. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. And he says in verse 9, Now also the axe is made to the root of the trees. In Matthew 3 he talks about his fan is in his hand in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will truly purge his garner and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. He was uncompromising. And that uncompromising attitude extended even to Herod. And we read those words, didn't we, concerning Herod? In Mark chapter 6, let's go to Mark 6, brethren and sisters, and see the uncompromising words that John spoke to Herod. We don't know exactly where this was, whether it was in public. It probably was in public because of the reaction of Herodias. But John could not and would not tolerate Herod's immoral behaviour in putting away his wife and taking the wife of his brother Philip. And John the Baptist says in verse 18 unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. That's the kind of man we're looking at. And he is opposed by a man who is exactly his opposite. The antithesis of John the Baptist in every way. We want to have a brief look at the character now of Herod Antipas, the man who put John the Baptist to death. Herod Antipas was born in BC 21, the son of Herod the Great. He was tetrarch of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to AD 39. He possessed the cunning of his father but lacked his diplomacy and skill, his military skill particularly. He was sly and ambitious. He was corrupt to the core actually, this man. Horsruff calls him a wily sneak. And we know that in Luke 13:32 Christ calls him a fox. Go tell that fox. His administration was utterly destitute of principle. It was based on cunning, crime and intense selfishness. And he rejected his first wife, the daughter of Aretas, and he paid a heavy price for that because Aretas was quite upset. That marriage was a, a political marriage, a marriage of convenience. And when Herod put Aretas' daughter away, Aretas attacked him and defeated him. So he paid a heavy price for Herodias. But nevertheless, he eloped with her 
his half-brother Philip's wife. That's why John condemns his actions here in Mark 6 verse 18. Now Herod ruled over the lands of Galilee and Perea and you can see those there circled in the red. So he had a lot to do with our Lord Jesus Christ and of course we know that Herod finally got to see our Lord just before his crucifixion. He also ruled over this area of Perea and it's in this area that we find the place of John the Baptist's death. His half-brother, Philip, ruled the areas of Ituria and Trachonitis to the north and east of Galilee. Herod built Tiberias, a city which you can still go to today and see the Roman ruins, in AD 19 as his capital. And it was here that Herodias seduced him when Philip and Herodias came on a visit one day. He also used Machaerus to protect his southern border from the Nabataeans who were in league with Aretas, the king of Damascus. And because, of course, he now had a rather difficult situation with Aretas, he had to fortify his borders against possible attack. So this is the background that builds up this story that we have before us here in Mark chapter 6. When you have a look at the area which we're talking about, you see this picture here of the region of Herod's stronghold, Machaerus. We're actually looking northwest here, across the Dead Sea towards Jerusalem. This is the region where John was to come to the end of his days. And to the north of this, of course, John had been baptising in the Jordan. So he was very familiar with this area. It was to be the place where he would see his last day. The ruins of Machaerus sit high on a hill. In fact, it's probably called a mountain. And you can see it there, the red arrow points to the remaining ruins of Machaerus today. And you can go there and walk through these ruins. Here's Machaerus from the east. See it there, perched high like the lair of an eagle on the top of the mountain. Well, why am I showing you some pictures? It's not to fill up the time, I can assure you. I want you, brethren and sisters, to try and go there and to sit in the dungeon with John and listen to the loud music and the laughter and the hilarity one level above you. That's what it was. One level above you. You're in the dungeon. And just above you, you can hear the goings-on on Herod's birthday. I want you to be there. I want you to think about the implications of all this, especially for Nazariteship. That's what the world is doing, isn't it? While we sit here at Bible school, it's carrying on as though Christ would never come. When we go back to our homes and endeavour to express in our lives the principles we've learned at Bible school, the world will carry on in the antithesis of Nazariteship and that's going to be our challenge. Can we maintain our faith to the end? Can we be like John? He went through his emotional ups and downs as we know. He sent messengers to Christ 
to say, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? There was desperation in that. He sought release, and release came for him in the best possible way. Now what we have before us, brethren and sisters, is this history now of Machaerus. It was originally built by the Hasmonean ruler Alexander Janius, 103-76 to BC. It was destroyed by the Romans in 63 BC and rebuilt by Herod the Great, who ruled from 37 to 4 BC. And Josephus records of him, who built a wall round the very summit and erected towers at the corners, each 27.4 metres high. In the middle of this enclosure he built a palace, breathtaking in size and beauty. This breathtaking palace, this powerful stronghold was taken over by Herod Antipas on the death of his father in 4 BC and Josephus records that this was the place of the execution of John. Josephus being almost a contemporary. So there's probably some reliability that we can place on his record. And gathered in this place, brethren and sisters, there were... Four people, all of whom had identical twins in history. There was Ahab of old, who was the pattern for Herod of John's day. Both ruled by dominant women, both amenable to the word of God, but vacillating. We know the history of Ahab only too well, and Herod was like that. He was now in the iron grip of his wife Herodias as Ahab had been in the iron grip of Jezebel who motivated him to evil. So this is the next set of identical twins. Jezebel and Herodias, resolute women ruled by lust and ambition which by the way was to destroy Herod in the end. Vengeful seducers, hard, incorrigible and unforgiving and their children. Athaliah and Salome, both of them carnal seducers who were ruthless in achieving their ambitions. And Elijah and John the Baptist, courageous for the truth in the face of great danger, but both wonderfully true to their Nazarite ship to the end. So you see, we've had a, we've had a, a, a a previous run, as it were, of this history. Here is the second round. And we find these four people gathered on the heights of Machaerus. There in the palace, you can see the, the, the enormous columns that still stand there. There in the palace, Herod celebrates his birthday. And in the dungeon beneath, One level below, we believe, was John the Baptist in irons and had been there for some time, wasting away. This fortress of Herod was situated on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea near two places, Abiram and Pisgah, which of course were in the history of Israel's travelling into the land. And so, brethren and sisters, we come to look at the record of Mark 6 and we see 
The reason why John was in prison, verse 19, therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. Why? For, for Herod feared John. The word feared is phobio. He had a phobia about John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy. In other words, Herod was quite aware of the Nazariteship of John the Baptist. And it's fairly evident that John was a true Nazarite, that he had grown his hair long. He was known to be a holy man. And Herod feared him. And it says he observed him. You'll notice the margin has got, he kept him or saved him from the hand of Herodias who sought to destroy John in her vengeful anger against his intervention in their improper marriage. And it says at the end of verse 20, and when he heard him, which he did on the odd occasion, he did many things. A strange phrase, that isn't it? He did many things. The Vatican manuscript has, he was much perplexed. In other words, John motivated Herod to good, just like Elijah motivated Ahab to good. It couldn't make any real progress. Because on the other side of that equation, there was a hard, incorrigible woman. And she would have her day And the day had come. Verse 21. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief estates of Galilee, Salome came out and danced salaciously before that company. And Herod in his drunkenness made a rash promise which he had to keep. We know the story well. But look at the contrast we have here between Herod Antipas and John the Baptist. It's Herod's birthday, but this is the day of John's death. Herod was fleshly from his birth. John had been a Nazarite from his birth. Herod was drunk. He had no control of his mind, but John was a faithful Nazarite. He didn't touch wine or strong drink. He was in full control of his mind. Herod was ruled by his lusts, but in John, all lust, and I mean all lust, had been denied. Herod was influenced by others to murder. But John had given his whole life to save others from death. Herod lost his head in his drunkenness, lost his way, and he eventually lost his kingdom. John lost his head literally and gained the kingdom. What contrasts they are. Now look at the record, brethren and sisters, in Mark 6. When Herodias, when the daughter of Herodias came in in verse 22 and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said to the damsel, Ask me whatsoever thou wilt and I will give thee. Now I can't put on a drunken voice, but you can imagine how that was spoken. You know, I asked him. I won't even try. 
And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou wilt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Hang on. Herodias might have had something to say about that. So it was just one of these bold, stupid promises that men make when they are drunk and out of their mind. You can imagine him looking around at his compatriots and all these men sitting there (coughs) drinking (coughs) and stuffing their face with food. And they're all saying, yeah, that's, you know, good on you, Herod. (laughs) And down below, there's a man listening to all this. He can hear the music. He can hear the bang, bang on the floor as the woman does her belly dance. He can hear all, he can hear the glasses falling to the ground from drunk hands. He doesn't know that this is his last hour. And the record says in verse 24 that she went forth and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And immediately it comes back. There's no hesitation. There's no delay because Herodias hated John's head. She hated his Nazarite ship. She hated everything he stood for. She didn't have to think. When her daughter came in and said, what shall I ask? She didn't say, oh, look, maybe I'll get a Rolls Royce. Uh, you know, I'd love, I'd love some new furniture in the lounge room. It wasn't like that at all. She wasn't aware that her, that her daughter would come the Baptist. I hate his thinking. You know what? If you highlight it, the word head occurs in this context four times. There in verse 24, again in verse 25 towards the end, in the middle of verse 27, and again in verse 28. And we've pointed out before, brethren and sisters, that four, amongst other things, is the biblical number for righteousness. That's why there's a four-square encampment. That's why there's a perfect four-square cube for the most holy place. That's why four dominates the structure of Israel's encampment. It's about righteousness. And here was a head given to righteousness. And that picture is not extremely pleasant, is it? This is an artist's depiction of the beheading of John the Baptist. In verse 25, when Herodias has demanded the head of John the Baptist, she came in straightway with haste. The word haste means speed or eagerness unto the king and asked him saying, I will what thou give me, not by and by. That word by and the phrase by and by, we would tend, I think, in the English language to think that that means, well, there's, you know, when it's convenient. But in the Greek, that is the word exortis. It means instantly. I will that thou give me instantly, right now, the head of John the Baptist in a charger, a large dish. You can see the large dish. It's appalling, isn't it, really, when you think of that. 
the head of John the Baptist. Can you imagine what happened now? The soldier given the charge, Herod is very reluctant. Verse 26 tells us he was exceeding sorry, sorry, yet for his oath's sake, you know, he's a big man, he can't go back on his oath. And for their sake, which sat with him, they're all looking at him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. Can you imagine this? Sit there in the dungeon, brethren and sisters. You can hear all the cacophony, the noise from above. Then all of a sudden it goes quiet. And the next thing you hear are the steps of a man. You can hear a man coming. Then there's the clank, clank, clank as the door opens in the dungeon. And the soldier walks in. He says to John, bend over. What for? Bend over. Boom. And he grabs his head, brings it out, puts it on a large dish and carries it upstairs. We're appalled by that, aren't we? You know what, brethren and sisters? It was the very, very best thing that could have happened to John. His work was done. He said, He, Jesus, must increase, but I decrease. My work is done. A forerunner, once he has heralded the coming of the one of whom he is a herald, his work is done. He's not married. He doesn't have a father or a mother alive. There is no family. His disciples... Many of them, most of them, are now following Jesus. What would John have done if Herod, in clemency, had let him go? What would he have done? The very best thing for him at 30 years of age was to fall asleep, awaiting the resurrection. And what a dramatic way to go when you are a Nazarite from the womb. And Nazariteship is all about lifting the head above the body. Separating the head, the mind, the thinking from the natural tendencies of the flesh which John had not exercised in the way you and I do. We don't often think of it that way, do we? It was quick. And the next thing he will know is that his head will be back on his body and his body will be changed. We don't know what they did with the head, but we do know what happened to the body. Verse 29. Verse 29 says, And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. The word corpse there is the Greek word toma, P-T-O-M-A. 
It means a ruin. A lifeless body. A ruin. His head, we don't know, might have been used as a trophy by Herod and Herodias. There's nothing written about that. At least that I'm aware of. But this we can be assured of, brethren and sisters. His body was put in the ground by itself. His head was somewhere else. And that is the testimony of John's faithful Nazarite ship. Now, 13 years ago, I spent a lot of time waving a hand at you. We were talking about the Sabbath day and the principle of the Sabbath. Remember that? The principle of the Sabbath, the open hand. You probably won't remember in 13 years' time that the principle of Nazarite ship is revealed in the removal of John's head from his body. But that's the graphic imagery we should take away. And what it should do for us, brethren and sisters, is that we should remember in the days that remain to us of our vow that the objective of our life is to lift our mind to things above and to mortify the deeds of the body, as Paul puts it in Colossians 3. To set the operation of our mind upon things above where Christ sits on the right hand of God that we might grow into the head of our family and ultimately leave behind a nature which is ever tending towards the earth and which can only bring us, if we obey its lusts, to ruin. That's the story. The story doesn't end there. God remembers these things, brethren and sisters. And Herodias, after the death of John, not content with Herod's status, he was only tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. He wasn't king. She induced him to appeal to Caesar, to promote him to kingship in Judea. So Antipas, under the impulse of his wife's demands, went to Rome to Emperor Caligula, one of the most vile creatures that ever crawled onto the throne. I say crawled, he was an animal. The throne of the Roman Empire. He demanded that Caligula make him king. Caligula found some treason in Herod Antipas and so he banished him to Gaul and then to Spain for intrigue against the throne in AD 39. So Herod lost his throne and he ended up with his miserable wife Herodias in poverty in Spain and died there in ignominy and shame. What about Salome? the daughter of Herodias. Well, she was the daughter of Philip I, (coughs) granddaughter of the high priest, Simeon, (coughs) on her mother's side. (coughs) She was famous, of course, for her salacious dancing leading to the death of John the Baptist. She later married Philip II, her uncle, who died died childless in AD 34. Then she married Aristobulus, her cousin. They used to intermarry in the family in those days and had three sons, but... If history is right, and I don't know whether this is right or not, but if history is right, this is a remarkable case of poetic justice because it is said she was decapitated while skating on thin ice. 
you know, it's beautiful out here today, straight through, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be fitting? Maybe true. Now some practical lessons for us. In the second of Corinthians chapter 10, we read this. In verse 3, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Takes our mind back to John, doesn't it? Hurled in the stronghold, put to death there. But he was the triumphant one, brethren and sisters. Machaerus today is in ruins. Herod's kingdom was in ruins because of what he did to John. But that man triumphed over strongholds. But his weapons were not carnal. Verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations or reasonings and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That word there, thought, is the Greek word noema. If it means every thought, I've got a problem. Because if you are able to bring every single thought of your mind into captivity to obedience to Christ, then I want to know your secret. But it doesn't mean that. The word thought means what is thought out. Therefore, purpose, design and project. Many of my unbidden thoughts are not in obedience to Christ. I can assure you that. But our task is to sort those things out. To discard the fleshly and to exalt the spiritual. That's what needs to be done. We need to keep our minds set upon the objectives of our Nazarite ship. To bring every design, every purpose of our life, every project we undertake to the obedience of Christ, just like John did. Brother Carter, in writing on the letter to the Ephesians, said on page 122 that sublimation is better than repression. How do we do this? How do we bring every plan, every design into obedience to Christ? The evil can be put away and kept away only by putting the good into possession and maintaining it there. Right acts must take the place of wrong acts. For development and repression are not two things but one. All genuine development already carries in it repression of much. To carry out the changes from the bad to the good requires that there should be a compelling power which springs from affection. The expulsive power of a new affection must also be a power that attracts and develops the right. Now, I haven't been able to catch Brother Roger. I hope I'm not transgressing on his territory here. I just do want to show this wonderful principle as Paul expresses it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. And my sincere apologies, Roger. I'm not getting to hear you. I'm at the teenagers. But my sincere apologies if I do transgress. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22.
What we have in this passage are two verses, verses 22 and 24, which stand over against each other. They are contrasting. They're on the screen in front of you. Paul says in verse 22 that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt, etc. Put off is matched by put on in verse 24. That ye put on the new man. So there's the contrast. The old man of verse 22 is contrasted with the new man of verse 24. (laughs) The old man is corrupt, but the new man is created. He's a work of God. He's naturally corrupt. But the new man is God's product. The old man is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Well, the new man is created in righteousness and true holiness, or can I say, true Nazariteship. So what's the difference between the old man and the new man? The difference is verse 23, which sits in the fulcrum of these two passages. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's what Nazarite ship is about, brethren and sisters. Separating the way we think from the natural tendencies of the carnal mind with which we are born and the propensities of our flesh with which we struggle every day of our lives. Raising our thinking to higher levels. That's how the new man is created in righteousness and true holiness.